You are listening to Made for Mutuality. In this podcast, we take a deeper look into the scriptures to help us understand the principles and truths regarding women and men working together as partners, both in the church and in the home. Thank you and enjoy. Welcome to the next lesson of Mutuality, um, this series um, on men and women relationships in the Bible. This is lesson five. We'll be looking at Ephesians 5 and 6, the household codes. What about submission? Um, you know, as we as we look into this, I want us to first sort of think of all the, or not all, but several ways that I have heard and have used this passage um, uh, in ways that were of born in misunderstanding, the misuse of this passage. Have you ever heard that men need respect and women need love? In the sense that men don't need love and women don't need respect. Well, that's where this that teaching, if you've ever heard it, it probably came from this passage. Or maybe you've heard the Bible's just outdated altogether. It's just useless because this passage talks about wives submitting and slaves obeying. And and if you've heard that, then that also is probably teaching from this passage. Um, I think maybe you might have, if you haven't heard of those, maybe you have heard that um, maybe someone say that wives submit... Uh, to their husbands means that men are in charge, that they are the leaders, they're the final decision makers. Um, well, you know, in all of these things, there's some misconceptions and um, they've gotten uh, some things tangled up, these arguments do. So I want to just sort of go back. You know, I grew up learning the Bible and then have then been teaching the Bible for decades. And one of the things that I am not proud to say, but um, is true, is that I never realized until back several years back, but that I had never realized that that this teaching, the household codes, were not something that were unique to the Bible. In my mind, they were God's way. They were the Christian system. There was this sense that this was how God wanted it, and this is how he ordered the home and society. And um, I didn't realize that household codes were something that were very commonly known and talked about in that day and time, in that culture. And, um, you know, I, I think that it's important for us to always look at that. That's one of the things we're learning about reading the Bible is to look at the culture at the time as best we can and also try to figure out how the people there heard what was being said. And of course, this is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus and there's things going on in that church at that time and we don't really know all of the details of what's going on. Um, I know in our last lesson, we looked at Acts 19, and we saw some things that were happening in Ephesus. Uh, the goddess Artemis 
and sort of the temple there and the culture and how that had affected um, the people, the culture, and even been brought into the church some. And so it's good to look because we look for a, a redemptive trajectory, sort of to see what the people there heard, what it meant to them, and that sometimes helps us to understand better what Paul was saying, what the scriptures are um, hoping for them to hear and change and to apply. And so it helps us to understand how to apply these things better very often in our culture and our time. So, you know, Paul, remember, he was always uh, teaching us not just what to think, but how to think. And so in this passage, he once again addresses and teaches teaches us how to think about relationships. Now, like I said, this is not something that is unique to Bible. In fact, it was a very uh, common thing, uh, the household codes. And I think that it's good to remember that um, in, in this audience were most likely, or in the, the Ephesian church, there were Jewish disciples, there were probably followers that, that, that had been converted to Jesus, that had been followers of Artemis, the goddess Artemis. And then, but there was just this Greco-Roman culture that was there and that, the, you know, the way the government functioned and a lot that was happening at that time. And so one of the things that I learned about it is that Paul was using something that was very well known by the people, but he made a drastic change in what they would normally think of as the household codes. It would almost be today as if someone maybe in America that the Pledge of Allegiance. It's maybe not something everybody knows, but it would be something maybe that would be commonly known. And you'd take the Pledge of Allegiance, but change the words in such a dramatic way that it would call attention to the differences. It would make it clear sort of what your points were, that you were saying something very different than what the Pledge of Allegiance was, or maybe even the Lord's Prayer, something as precious as that. But if you were to take it, and it would be really well known in a culture, and you would change the words, well, you would be drawing attention to the differences that you were trying to point out. And so that is what's happening. You know, it's not that it is a... Um, kind of a reiteration or a reinforcement of the culture of the day or the power structure of the day. Paul is not reinforcing that. In fact, he's drawing a radical difference, like showing them how to think very differently than the world around them and how the world thought at that time. Um, you know, there were many that had that had written out sort of the household codes. They were even at um, times became part of the Roman government in a sense. It was part of being a good citizen for a free man to be uh, uh, to follow these household codes and to learn how to rule 
to rule his uh, wife or wives, as it may be, to rule his children, maybe even grown children, not just the, the minors in the home, and to rule um, the slaves that, uh, that he owned. And so it was uh, almost always uh, addressed just to the to the mat, the paterfamilias or the the man the free man in charge um not to those under his charge um and so you're going to see Paul really do things very differently as you look at this and of course the feeling back then even Aristotle one of the things that a quote uh, of his is uh, male by nature are superior females inferior one rules the other is ruled and so that was kind of the the overall feeling of a lot of the culture at the time uh the greco-roman culture and um and even some in the jewish culture it was just it was it was interesting but um and of course we don't know all the the specifics of how people sitting there felt or what they thought. But what we know is it isn't what, at least I know it wasn't what I thought before I really studied this, that it's not reinforcing the culture's power structure of the day, but instead he's trying to make a point. A very radical point is the truth. Um, so let's keep that in mind as we go through this passage. The other things I want us to keep in mind and I think would be helpful is to remember 1 Corinthians 7. That was our, one of our earlier studies. That was lesson three. And um, that, that was, that's the longest passage on gender in the entire Bible. And, of course, it's written by Paul, um, and he really go, does a painstakingly powerful job of balancing men and women and treating them very equally, very mutually. And um, it says that, um, you know, in, in, the, in several of the, the directives there, Paul is saying that um, the way to make a decision for a married couple, it needs to be mutual consent. Um, which is one of the reasons we use that term mutuality, that that was what Paul was being so strong about there. Um, and, um, you know, that the only time authority is used, uh, the word authority is used um, in reference to marriage. Um, it's right there in 1 Corinthians 7, and it's a yielding to one another, giving, yielding that authority uh, to each other in a very mutual way. So it's just, it's very, it, it, it's a very powerful lesson. I hope you get to listen to that one if you haven't already. Um, but let's keep that in mind because that was written, most scholars think, about five years before this Ephesian letter that we're about to study. So 1 Corinthians came five years before that. And most theologians think that Galatians was written about 10 years before that, where Paul you know, mentions um, about no barriers, no uh, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, man or woman, uh, that, that those barriers, the race, class, gender, have been broken down in the church. And, and so, uh, 
you see Paul kind of building. It's like a, as he as he goes, and and then he comes to this Ephesians uh, five, um, five and six. Um, also, keep in mind that it is a letter. Uh, that it is uh, that we need to remember that you know that he's it's an epistle is another word for it and uh, so it's good to read the entire letter not just the piece we're going to read today so it would be very important to go back and read the whole letter get the entire literary context um, also, let's keep in mind that Paul always was trying to make the gospel attractive. Now, not through compromise, but he didn't want to just like blatantly threaten the power structure of the uh, Greco-Roman, you know, leadership there. Um, but he didn't want people to be your common people to be suspicious before they even were able to share that Jesus was the Messiah uh, with the people. So, so he does he does definitely uh, keep in mind that uh, he wants you know Jesus to be taught throughout, and. Um, but one of the main things we always need to remember is that Jesus' way was really different. And that's what he's really going to emphasize and draw attention to in this study. That Jesus' way is humble and kind and serving. It's a big change for the people, especially the, the paterfamilias or the, the free men and how they looked at their role um, in society and in family. And um, because like during that time, even something as simple as the legally wives uh, were supposed to have the free man's religion, like they were whoever's household they were in, they were supposed to take on the, the man, the paterfamilias, to take on his household. And, I mean, his religion and even his politics and that they were supposed to sort of, uh, you know, relinquish uh, a lot of um, what they believed and go with his way of thinking. And, um, you know, as you go, as we go through this, I want to call attention to the fact that Paul addresses the power people in each category. He addresses them last which is really something because the fact that he addresses the less powerful, the wife, the child, the slave, is pretty phenomenal anyway, that he even addresses them like they have a choice of how to act or what to what to be, you know. I mean, they did, but I mean, it, it's not like they had a choice whether to, in society, the way society looked at it, whether to do what the, the free man in charge said. But, but he not only addresses them, he addresses them first in each category and then addresses the powerful, the more powerful socially uh, in the situation last. And, um, and he asks them to change. That's what this is about. His, he is really asking these Christians, like if they're going to be disciples of Jesus, then in this, in this uh, household codes, they need to see their place and see it is very different than what they were brought up to believe, most likely, and what society would tell them is appropriate. Um, he's asking them to reject the cultural style of domineering, 
um, in their uh, in their roles, in in their uh, position, in their homes and um, their communities, and um, so it's usually written. I'll say once again, it's usually written to teach these free men or to give them kind of, you know, some little pointers on how to rule. But Paul completely leaves that out as far as ruling. And I want you to notice that as we go. So these are the things I want us to be looking at and, um, and sort of thinking on. And remembering that there's things going on in Ephesus and we don't know what all they are. But keep that in mind. Um, that that um, Jesus' way was different, and Paul is going to try to help them see how to live out their interpersonal relationships, like how to be Christians in this society that they were in. I mean, that was big, and it is for each of us in every society and every time to figure out how to live for Jesus right now in our lives where we are and that's what he's writing them about how to live during that time and i think it was really challenging um to live in that time to live out jesus and he's pointing that out okay so let's dig into the passage itself in um you know, the book of Ephesians is wonderful. I mean, it covers faith and unity and love and learning and growing and being a part of the body and how important it is. I mean, it it, it covers a lot, which is tremendous. And it, as he comes down to the part that we're going to really look into today, he starts talking about live as children of light and find out what pleases the Lord. He's talking about living in the light instead of the darkness and how the darkness, you know, is something that Christians are supposed to be out of, come out of the darkness. And um, and he comes down and he begins, let's begin in verse 15. Let's sort of take it up there. I think that will be helpful. And um, it says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity be very careful then how you live not as wise but as unwise making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil therefore do not be foolish but understand what the lord's will is do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery instead be feel filled with the spirit okay he's talking to them about how to live in these difficult times and to be filled with this. Don't be filled with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. Now, he's not making a prohibition against wine, just drunkenness. But, I mean, he's saying be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to the God of to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so he's saying, be filled with God's Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. This is how to avoid the darkness. This is how to be in the light. Even in these dark and difficult times they're living in, this is how to stay in the light. To be filled with the Spirit. To be wise, not unwise. Remember that uh, the idea of foolish um, has a moral uh, component to it uh, in the Bible. It's that, you know, to be foolish would be to ignore God or not trust God or believe in God or his words. 
Um, and so the, he's he's challenging them to really be wise and to truly speak to one another, to speak, to sing, to make music, to give thanks. This is the spirit sort of that they are supposed to walk with. And then he comes down in verse 21 and he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Some of your versions say submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You know, this is a a very important verse. And I want you to note that in many versions of the Bible, maybe the one you're reading right now, um, it has a heading that is just added Okay, just like the the chapters and verses were added, um, there's maybe a heading added that says wives and husbands, Um, but it starts in verse 22 instead of 21, which doesn't make any sense because you have to remember that in the Greek there wasn't punctuation and that actually this idea of of walking and being uh, filled with the Spirit is kind of one clear thought. And it comes right into this whole idea of the household codes. And some of your versions may have that written as well, which it actually does not say those words um, in the scriptures. But, um, but people would have recognized them right off, like we said. Okay, so this idea of submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So this is good. This is important. Um, I think that you you see right here mutual submission. If you think back to 1 Corinthians 7, that sounds right. That sounds exactly what Paul has taught before. Very much uh, what he has written uh, for the um, Corinthians. But he was in Ephesus when he was writing it. And so this idea of mutual submission is very important to Paul. Now the other thing about submit is when someone says submit, or the Bible teaches submit, Submit to or submit yourself to someone, it doesn't mean they have authority over you. That's an assumption that's been made that's actually a pretty erroneous assumption. Submission was the kind of thing that Jesus um, used to help us understand how to um, deny ourselves and put others before us to really uh, love, to really yield. And the word uh, submission does mean to yield, to yield to what would be best for that person or what they want or what they need. It's It's the Christian way of relating. But because it says submit to one another doesn't mean that now you're an authority over me and now I'm an authority over you. I mean, it it really isn't about that. It's about this yielding, this free will yielding to one another, putting each other ahead of ourselves in healthy, good ways in this loving, sacrificial, um, this real love that Jesus wants us to have for each other. And, um, So then he goes down and he describes how we will be submitting to one another, like how he's going to uh, encourage this group to submit to, to do this, to submit to one another. How will it be done? What will it look like for wives, for husbands, for children, for fathers, uh, for slaves, and for masters? So let's keep reading. Um, in verse 22, I'm going to go ahead and read 22 uh, through the end of this chapter, and then we'll go back and go over it a little at a time. 
Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Some of your versions may say, in with a whole heart, which is sort of that, that phrase, what that means. And then verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Okay, they they break here, and uh, at the, this is the end of chapter 5. So uh, as the letter was broken up into chapters and verses, they, they, they stopped here. Um, it still goes on with kind of one thought, but it's good. It's good to, for us for now to stop right here. Okay, let's go back and look at this, this idea of wives. Now, one of the things in the Greek, you have to remember this was written in... Um, uh, ancient language it, it was written in Greek um, and when it's translated one of the things that it does is it says um, the way this reads in verse 21 submit to one another out of reverence for Christ wives to your husband as to the Lord or as is pleasing to the Lord okay so the way this is, is submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your husbands. It doesn't have the word submit there. And, and it goes on down and talks about wives submitting. So we're not trying to say that, that you know, at all, that wives are not to submit. It's just why that's important is because it uses the verb from up here, or it uses the submit. So it's going back, it's saying, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your husbands this way. Husbands, love your wives this way. And so it goes back, and it's it's actually helping to... Uh, sort of apply that scripture, okay, that that admonition, apply, submit to one another, and he's showing them how. And so it says, wives to your husband as in service to the Lord. Um, and then it says, for the husband is the head of the wife. Now, one thing to note here is it doesn't say the husband must be head of the wife. The, the husband um you know, uh, is supposed to be the head of the wife. It just says, it's stating fact. And I don't have any real application out of that, except it's just important that we remember how to read things or look at and think how to read things. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And so it makes this comparison. So as he's talking to the wives, and of course they would not have been in that culture at all surprised that he's saying, okay, submit to one another. That would have been more surprising than wives to your husbands. 
um, that was something that was just accepted in that culture. And so he says, uh, but now he goes to describe what it means. And he says, you know, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. So this is important for us to take a moment and look at because so much has been made out of this idea that Paul uses this example and talks about head. They even use it in a term headship, which is never in the Bible, but that makes it sound like it's a a, um, a practice or a, a principle or something, which that's not actually in the Bible. In fact, the word head in this passage right here is used as a head-body metaphor, and it actually means head, like the physical head of a body. And it's saying that Jesus is like the physical head of the church, the body, okay? It's making a head-body metaphor. And this is something that I spent just several years uh, studying, this idea of head-body metaphor. And I would encourage you to really dig in and, and see what you find about this. Um, we do not have time to go into a deep study of head today. Um, but I would say um, it's, uh, it's the Greek word kephale, um, and I may be pronouncing that wrong, but um, it, it, it does not connote authority. There's no authority in that necessarily. There's no uh, idea of leadership, authority, or boss. See, that's a very Western use of the word head. And we say, well, the head of the committee or the head of the company or the head, I mean, and we use it very much as means the boss, the leader, the one in charge. And yet that's not the way they used the term head. And one of the things that's really helpful is to do thematic study. Like look at every time the word is head is used in the book of Ephesians or every time the word head is used in the book of Colossians or in 1 Corinthians, and you learn so much about how Paul is using it in that letter, each of those letters. And it is even a little bit different. But it always comes back to source, that head, in this head-body metaphor, is source or supply or origin, uh, like uh, nourishment, uh, filling that the head uh, fills that the or it's used like uh, headwaters. Um, I know even in the Hebrew in the Old Testament, it's used as rosh. Uh, I mean uh, the the Hebrew word is rosh, like there in the beginning, but it means beginning, like the head, the the headwaters, the beginning, the source, and. Um, and I, I think that this is, um, I don't know, I just think that this is a really important thing. If this is uh, kind of trips you up, then this would be a great thing to dig in and study. There's a lot of wonderful resources uh, on this. Um, and sometimes even that head-body metaphor, very often you'll see, as you're doing the thematic study, you'll see that it means unity. That it's that completeness, that you, that unity, that oneness between head and body. That the body can't live without the head, and the head can't live without the body. Now we know God can live without us, so that's not like it, it's like you got to dig in and think through this. Why is Paul bringing this up? And this is what we need to think about. Okay, 
So he's talking to the wives and the husbands and the families here, right? And so he's, he brings this up, this analogy of wife and husband. And he uses head and body. It's almost like you can see, it's like that unity, that oneness, that, that sense of um, that Christ is the source, is the nutrient, is the, the supply of all that's good or needed um, in, in this situation. But notice what Paul himself describes as the reason he brought this uh, metaphor up. He says, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the what? The Savior. Now, it could have said, of which he is the Lord. And that would have been true. I mean, Jesus is the authority. He's in charge. He's the boss. I mean, all of us know that. He's Lord and Master. We That's not a, for dispute. But why is he using this head-body metaphor here? He says, and he points out, that Jesus is the Savior. And so how do you respond to Jesus as Savior? The fact that he gave his life for you, he saves you. Man, there's this free will appreciation. We love him. We yield our lives to him. We are wholehearted, so grateful. See, he's describing to these wives what they need to do, the attitudes they need to have in this relationship, and that that will bring glory and honor to God. And he says, verse 4, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands with their whole hearts. Like in every way, in ev- there's got to be this wholeness, this completeness in this yielding that they have. And of course, wives should submit to their husbands. There's never an argument about that. It's just that sometimes that's used to say, and husbands shouldn't submit to their wives. And yet it is supposed to be mutual, this yielding. Okay, let's keep reading. In verse 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her with water, uh, washing her with the word, presenting her to himself uh, without stain or wrinkle, any other blemish. And he is talking about the church. You have to remember that. And, And he says, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Like there's got to be this kind of devotion, this kind of sacrificing, this kind of love and giving and serving and care. But you have to remember to even challenge the marriages back then, to challenge in the marriages back then, to challenge the husbands to love their wives was big enough. Now, as Christians, hopefully they already saw that as the church. But in the culture, that wasn't the thinking. This was, this was a legal agreement, a legal commitment, this marriage. And very often, even wives were given to husbands that were 10, 15, maybe even more years older than them. Even it said in the, the uh, commentaries of that day, the culture, that they, the wives were given to the men really young so they could help raise them. Okay, so now we know we're talking about a really different culture, right? I mean, that's really 
scary. But anyway, but that is how they, they thought and felt. And so this idea of loving her and loving her in this way, see, the, divorce was rampant in this time. Men would put away wives for just on lots of different reasons. If they just didn't please them or they didn't like them or they did something, they I mean, if they were barren, for sure. Um, so there was just all of this um, culture that was just, very different, that it really went against the grain, what he's teaching. And so he's telling the the wives, definitely submit, give your whole heart, like really, really be devoted in this marriage and to um, do it with a wholeheartedness. And then he tells the husbands, look, it's this kind of love. It's this kind of care, this idea of feeding your own body, caring for yourself. It's like making sure that you've got this kind of laying down your life and sacrifice um, for her. And he is describing what submission to his wife would look like. Like, how is he going to have this kind of submit to one another, that kind of mutual love and caring and submission? It looks like this, guys. In that time, he describes a lot in detail. And then he even refers back to before the fall, in verse 31, when the two become one flesh. So he kind of goes back to the beginning, beginning, before sin entered the world, kind of how it could be amazing. It could be this um, this ideal uh, of mutual love for one another. And, um, and he comes back around, verse 32, he says, but I'm talking about Christ in the church, but however... He brings it down to the bottom line, okay? His conclusion of this kind of section of wives and husbands, he does this. However, each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, which was a big calling, and wife must respect her husband, okay? Now, I want us to see that because that's kind of what he boils it down to in uh, kind of in the conclusion of it. And and he's trying to help them have this, this Christian relationship inside the confines of their home or their family or family group. It might have been grown children and their wives or their grown sons and their wives and children as well. But there's this sense of, look, this is how to live this way. But notice it says, and the wife must respect her husband. It doesn't say the wife must obey. In fact, the scriptures never, ever say that a wife must obey her husband. That's something that was made up years later. I mean, this is, it's not in the scriptures to obey. And even you're going to see in a minute how it does use the word obey for children and for slaves, but it never uses the word obey for wives. And um, and I think that's very important, um, you know, for us to just take in as we're trying to figure this out. That he's trying to get the men uh, the especially in this Greco-Roman culture kind of thing, or just in the culture of the time, all their different cultures, um, to have the attitude of Jesus in Philippians 2, that he didn't take advantage of his rights and his privileges. You know, Jesus didn't take advantage of being the same as God, being God, being equal with God, but instead he emptied himself, made himself nothing, 
he emptied himself of those rights and privileges that he could have taken um, in the universe. And of course, these men, they had rights and privileges they could have taken in their culture. And he's uh, challenging them to give those up and to become a servant the way Jesus did. And um, I think that it's just, um, it, it, it's an incredible calling. And Jesus, and Paul is painting a beautiful picture of the Christian family, the Christian relationships and lives here. And, um, and I, but, but notice one of the, the principles that we used in an earlier study, it talks, uh, we talked about gender specific is not always gender exclusive, right? And here is one of those. It's like, um, even though Paul very clearly says, men love your wives and wives respect your husbands, in 1 Peter 3, the Bible says, husbands respect your wives. And in Titus 2, it says, teach the wives to love their husbands. So the fact that he's supposed to love his wife doesn't mean that she's not supposed to love her husband. It's not gender exclusive, even though in this case, it's gender specific because that was the need of the hour. The women weren't needed to tell to be told to love their husbands, not in this case, in this situation, but they were needed to be told to respect their their husbands. And the men, evidently that wasn't the message right now, to respect their wives, they needed to love them. Now they would hopefully come to learn that that part of love was respect the way Peter teaches later on. So, Anyway, I think that this, um, this is something that I would just encourage you to dig in and study more. But let's read on. In Ephesians 6 and verse 1, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you do because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for what he for whatever good he does, whether it is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Very often people leave off that last part when they study the household codes. And I think that's very unfortunate and very misleading, to be honest. Because I think that see Paul is is this is all one thought here. We can't just pick and choose the pieces. And um here in verse six, I think that this it's good to look at, and basically, you know, it was very unusual that it, there was something written to the children, um, but it, it, that's how Paul was. He was trying to get all of them to uh, to commit, all of them 
to submit to one another, to really live more in the ways Jesus wanted. And um, uh, so he tells the, the children, you know, to obey and gives them even reason and, 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 and that there's a promise that it comes with. And he encourages them to do it, not just commands. And then in verse uh, 4, he says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Now, this was unusual because he's telling the the dads, okay, the paterfamilias or the uh, the free men in charge. He's telling them to care how their children feel and to to be empathetic, to care how they make their children feel, to not exasperate them, but think like how they can motivate their children properly and to train them and, and remind them of Jesus, instruct them in the ways of Jesus and how to live like Jesus. So instead of just, you know, kind of that domineering, throwing out commands, which was evidently a part of the culture at that time. So this is a big call to the guys. It's like he, Paul is really, this is very different from the Roman codes, household codes, okay? This is just, it's a stark difference. And that's what he's doing. He's calling attention to what you, maybe you used to th- think the, the uh, household codes are. They're not anymore. Not for you, because you're disciples of Jesus, and you're going to live out these relationships live in these relationships very differently. And so then he goes on to the slaves. In verse 5, slaves obey your masters. And so he addresses it right there. Now, to tell slaves that, I mean, it's interesting. They knew that. You know, he's telling them what they already know. But you have to remember there are probably people in the Ephesian church there that didn't their their masters were not believers of Jesus, followers of Jesus. So they're sitting here and they're, they're reading this, or not reading, but they're having this read to them, most likely. And they are, they're, they're seeing that, okay, my master is not a believer, so how am I supposed to act as a disciple? Like, how am I supposed to try to live out this station in life I've been given? Now, I want to mention here that Paul is, um, at this point, he didn't have, like, the authority to change the system. And so he's trying to help each of these groups of people to figure out how to be Christians, where they were and what was happening. But he's not reinforcing the system. He's not putting his stamp of approval on slavery in any way. In fact... The book of um, Philemon was written about the exact same time, most theologians think, um, as this, as this letter, the the church in Ephesus was, was written this letter, the Ephesian letter. And so about this time, Paul had been writing or was about to write Philemon, and that was all about Philemon being uh, the master of Onesimus, the slave. And he's telling Philemon, Onesimus has become a disciple of Jesus, and I'm going to send him to you so that you can do what's right, and that is to give him his freedom, to teach, to treat him, 
your quote unquote slave to treat him as a brother, but no longer as a slave. And so Paul is Paul does take those stands when he has the authority to say, hey, you're a disciple of, you know, Philemon. You need to treat Onesimus as a brother, not a slave. And so I know that these scriptures have been misused about slavery. They've been used to both to even enact slavery, to empower slavery, to keep slavery in place. I mean, it's horrible the things that these scriptures have been used uh, to do. And so we know that scriptures can be misused, and, and when there's understanding, there can be tremendous uh, damage done by the use and the misuse of scriptures. And, um, and so this is really important that we look at this and see that this part about slaves and masters is, is written exactly in the same way as the wives, the husbands, the children. It's this is all part of the same thought process that Paul is describing and giving instruction on, which really made me think honestly about how was I reading this women and men and wives and husbands thing. That part of it, writing that, reading that that way, um, and just taking it out of context was dangerous and damaging. Just like the scriptures on slavery were used to uh, endorse slavery and to promote it, the, the misuse of wives and husbands, I believe, has been used to oppress women and to truly uh, put women in dangerous and difficult situations all over the world and throughout time, and uh, to put women at a disadvantage that I do not think that was Paul's point. I think, in fact, his point was the opposite, is that Jesus' way was more was supposed to be submitting to one another, not this dominant, subordinate relationships that the world teaches, and that sin entering the world began and propagated and has continued to propagate through time. So I think that this is, um, this is important for us to read, but he tells the slaves how to, be, how to do this with sincerity of heart, how to do it as if they were like as you would obey Christ, which is the kind of the same thing he says to the women here, is to have this heart. He's, he's trying to teach them how to think, how to have good hearts and attitudes about things, and to not do it just when someone's watching, but to do it from their hearts, he's telling the slaves. and um, But to be slaves of Christ and to do what they do, to do it for Christ, and which is very much that, you know, that attitude and heart he's teaching and uh, sir, verse 7 serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord not men um, because you know that the Lord you know will truly um, reward everyone uh, for all the good they do whether slave or free and so he reminds the people how wonderful Jesus is and how his way is spiritual and that having this good heart um, is what matters like having this right um, this uh, right kind of love and this right kind of heart um, and that God can use it and can use it for a lot of good, can bring good out of it. Let's look at uh, the next verse, um, which is who one of the most powerful in this entire passage. And it's, and masters treat your slaves in the same way. 
So now he is talking to these free men that saw themselves in charge and having complete authority and control. Um, in fact, the paterfamilias of the homes were uh, looked at as uh, sort of judge, jury, executioner, like, or whatever, give out the sentence. Like, he had tremendous authority. And so he's now telling them, treat your slaves in the same way. So he's, once again, he's telling them how to submit to one another, how to have this loving, kind, uh, respectful heart that these, that everyone in the world, that every human is created in the image of God, and that we have to be careful to treat people with the love and respect that God has for each of us. And so he's telling even the masters to treat the slaves in the same way. So there were Christians that that had slaves at that day and time. And he doesn't tell all of them to just set them free, which is very unfortunate. I have no idea why, and I, I can't offer an explanation why. But he says, hey, if you're in this audience or you read this and you own slaves, treat them the same way you're supposed to treat uh, in everyone. This kind of love, this kind of respect, the way you want to be treated, the way you want to have someone uh, have their heart and their whole heart and, and to look out for their good and to protect. The way he has described Jesus and protecting and, and serving and sacrificing. He say, hey, masters, treat your slaves in the same way. And then he gives a specific, do not threaten them. Which now that's a real interesting thing. Because, so they couldn't be a disciple of Jesus and, and tell someone, hey, you know, um, uh, if you don't do this, there's going to be this penalty. They couldn't threaten that they were supposed to um, have a different kind of spirit about this. Now, I've heard um, and probably done myself in years past, use this passage about slaves and masters to talk about um employers and employees, which I actually think is really sad in a way, even though the enduring principle of being kind and respectful, of course, applies everywhere with employing someone or whatever. But I don't believe we should use these passages about slavery to, to compare it to um, having employees. Uh, there is, that is such a stark harsh difference. I don't think that that's appropriate to use it that way anymore. But anyway, um, he, he goes on to say and remind him, you know that God, who is both mas his master and yours, whoever your slaves are, it, the, the God is their master and yours. So in other words, you're equal. There is no difference. And there is no favoritism with him. And so instead of kind of, um, you know, helping them to just be kind or whatever, he sort of takes the, 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 the masters and pulls them down to, hey, you're slaves too. There's no difference in you and, and the people that are slaves. You need to be careful. You need to have respect um, and treat them in the same way you are wanting to be treated um, as well. So I think that this, um, this is an amazing 
passage. I think that it is just, it's, it's truly, truly incredible. Um, you know, Paul was using this very commonly known uh, principle, the household code, to, to his audience. It was very commonly known, and he was making radical changes to draw attention to the difference. It was his way of putting an exclamation point. It's like, oh, and you know, the society tells you all these things. Well, let me tell you, I'm going to turn this thing upside down. I am going to turn it on its head. And I want you to listen. This is different than what the world teaches you. And um, he just remember, he was not reinforcing the common power structure of the day. He was not. He was making a commentary on it for sure. Um, and he doesn't hold back from making that commentary as far as, you know, that it's not God's way, these Roman household codes or these Greco-Roman. And so he goes on, he says, this te- um, uh, or, or in conclusion, what I think is this teaches us how to think. It teaches us how to have personal relationships as Jesus followers. We need to remember that sub- submitting is yielding my rights, my privilege. It's denying myself, serving. It's thinking of you first. I willingly submit myself to you, and you willingly submit yourself to me. We do that in marriage. We do that in our homes, in our interpersonal relationships. It's the Christian way of being. Submission really is the Christian way of being uh, with other people. Um Submission does not mean that anyone you submit to has authority over you. That's not the case. Um, it's a yielding. It, it, it's not a, I give a, you authority over me. Um, it's I'm willing to, you know, place you, your needs ahead of my own, deny myself. Um the Bible never teaches that wives or women are to obey husbands or men. Um, it never teaches that men have authority over women or that husbands have authority over wives. First um, Corinthians 7 makes it clear. It's the only time the word authority is ever used in reference to husbands and wives. And it's used as mutual, they yield that authority to one another, which is very much like Ephesians 5.21 that we just looked at, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Um, the husbands, the men were truly challenged, you know, they were challenged in all of this to, uh, to submit, to yield authority, not wield authority, which in their culture, it was about wielding authority, exercising authority, but instead they're being challenged to yield authority. Uh, As a husband, to lay down his life like a savior would, uh, to to be devoted, uh, to to have this incredible care and and kindness, um, to give up his rights, and his privileges, his power to sacrifice. Um, as a father, to be empathetic, uh, to have this kindness. As a master, um, if that was a role in life that he had, to be to do what's right, to be loving, to be fair, to have respect, to heed the warning that he is no better and that there's no favoritism from God. Um, 
you know, I think that um, the Bible never says that um, the husband is the leader in the home or the man is supposed to be the leader of the wife and family or set the spiritual direction of the family. Um, and it never says that um, there's a final decision maker, that the man or the husband is the one to make the final decision um, in, in, a, in the relationship. And um, I think it's just important to keep in mind Paul's admonitions, uh, especially in 1 Corinthians 7, about just that... He was really trying to show that balance, that mutuality. Now, right here, he's addressing the needs that have come up in this fellowship at this time. And um, and so we have to figure out, you know, what are the needs maybe in our relationships um, at this time. So I know that, um, and that pretty much is that that concludes the lesson. But what it makes me think, too, that I, the last thing I'd like to share has to do with the practicals that we have seen. Because I never studied this with the sense of, oh my goodness, well, what will this mean? If that's true, then what will that be like? Or I, I tried to just completely focus on what does the Bible say? What does this passage say? And um, and I know that we all have biases and whatever, but I know that there's so much at just looking at the actual passage and trying to study the context and figure out what Paul's trying to say and to teach. And so as I, as I figured this out and came to these uh, conclusions about uh, the, the this passage, um, then... The challenge began with how how do people live this? What is this going to be like, or how will it affect marriages? And I know that um, I have heard some very interesting stories, comments, anecdotes um, from men and women. I know that um, I've heard that women, you know, it's like they feel like, oh my goodness, I had un unmet expectations in my marriage. I always wanted him to lead. I always wondered why he didn't lead more or lead better. And I would blame him if the, you know, the family wasn't going the direction it should. Or I would, um, you know, want, want him to be the fixer. Like he needed to fix things if our marriage wasn't going uh, really well. Or if the children weren't doing well, then it was his fault. And, um, and her realizing this is not true. This is not all his doing or his fault or his responsibility. We're supposed to be partners. We're supposed to be in this together. We're supposed to be working together. And I have to take responsibility too for leading this family, for us doing this together in partnership. And um, I've seen that as a very healthy um, sort of thing that's come out of this. And then also, um, I know that with men, um, there have been more than one man, several of the men that have shared that they feel um, like as they've studied this and come to these same understandings and conclusions that they realize I feel free in a good way. Like I feel like I have a partner 
not that they want to take a step back and responsibility, but they want to share it. And they, they've expressed how they felt so much pressure that if things weren't great in the marriage or if the wife wasn't doing really well, then this was their fault and that they needed to somehow know the answer and figure out how to fix it or something wrong with the children. But that this has made so much more sense to them, them and helped at, okay, we share this. We share this burden. I have a fellow adult an equal partner that can work with me and we can really work together to figure out the marriage and each take responsibility and work together to uh, do what's best for the children and the whole family and that the even the different responsibilities in the family, whether it's finances or uh, whatever the different responsibilities, that they could divide those up based on gifts and talents, experiences that they could each take the portion of that needed to be taken by them and that was and they could be responsible and work together and each sort of bear their part uh, of the load and that it's been such a, a wonderful thing for the relationship to get healthier and stronger and even some people say well you know how do you make a decision if there's not a decision maker if somebody's not ultimately in charge and yet you know I, I love the anecdote from Gordon um, Ferguson, Gordon and Teresa, and uh, he tells this, um, you know, this story about how they uh, practice mutuality, and so when a decision comes up, even if it's something as simple as, you know, where to go eat, that they choose a number between one and ten, and they figure out, okay, you know, you you pick a number, I'll pick a number, and they each say their number. And you know, she wants a nine. This is how badly she wants to go to the restaurant she has in mind, and he wants it at five. And and so it's like, okay, we go to her restaurant, and um, and I know that's a very simple kind of thing. That life isn't that simple always, but there are a lot of ways that disciples are taught how to practice the one another passages to together and it's not a dominant subordinate relationship that resolves things it's more of a praying together seeking advice together studying the scriptures together figuring out maybe who uh, the issue what the issue is that matters the most to one of them or that they have more experience in so there are many ways that we can resolve kind of differences or disagreements um, that don't come with someone pulling rank on someone else or there being this kind of hierarchy in our in our lives and uh, and I think we all know that and so this is a this really produces a lot of healthy um, action healthy ways of, of dealing with things and um, it's it's been really encouraging in that way now also though we know that um, you know if husbands and wives have a, a method, a way that they work, and she really wants him to be the leader, well, then we, I think that each marriage is their own doing. They've got to work out their own relationship, um, that whatever works for them is fine. And, and I think that we can't interfere a lot in one another's relationships that way, and that people have to choose what's best for them. But as far as what this passage teaches, I have come to believe that this is really clear. Now, this is a change of mind. 
I definitely used to teach it one way and now I teach it differently. And I wanted to make sure that I share these things to explain why I changed my mind, that it is based in scripture and the understanding of scripture. Thank you for listening to the Made for Mutuality podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to continue to follow along and study out the subject, we'd like to invite you to subscribe or follow our show wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find a study guide of this episode on our website, madeformutuality.com. You can also connect with us on social media. All our links are provided in show notes of this episode.